0: Good afternoon, thank you all for coming. It's lovely to see such a wonderful group on this sunny day. I had a feeling everyone in the world would be out in their garden and there wouldn't be a soul here. So I'm I'm heartened to see you. I'm Lizzie Barker, Stanford Calderwood, director of the Athenaeum. I know many of you and I hope that by the end of this talk, I will feel as though we know each other even better. I'm going to leave lots of time for questions at the end of the talk, and I would ask only that if you can't hear me this afternoon, please wave your hands, shout, make it known. It would be such a shame if I gave a paper nobody could hear. If you think there was a misprint in our catalog and you saw this same talk listed earlier, that was deliberate. This is the third version I'm giving because we wanted to be sure that everyone in our community who was curious to learn about the history of the Athenaeum had the chance to hear it. It's also been an opportunity to test what would happen if we repeated some of our events that tend to be sold out. So if this goes very, very well, you might be able to persuade me to come back one more time on a different day of the week. My final slide this afternoon will be an image of covers of books and it will share with you some of the titles I would recommend that you glance at if you're curious to learn more about the history of the Athenaeum. But I should begin by saying that all of the hard factual evidence I owe to the good research of others and all of the wild ideas looking to the, to the future, I should own as my own with all of their potential mistakes. We'll begin in 1805. On a Wednesday night, October 23rd, a group of young men gathered at the Franklin Place home of this man, Reverend John Sylvester Gardner, shown here in the Athenaeum's portrait by Gilbert Stewart. Gardner was the new rector of Trinity Church, and his guests were members of the Anthology Society, a literary club formed just a few weeks earlier. The club had one purpose, to revive a failed publication of 1804, the monthly anthology and Boston Review. Here's an image of the cover. It was a kind of New Yorker magazine of the Federalist period with a wide range of topics and many more articles about religion than we might encounter nowadays. It had poetry, um, even some essays that would have been pertinent to the study of science. Gardner was well-educated, well-traveled, and young, as were his dinner guests, primarily in their 20s and 30s. Following the meal and the after-dinner remarks, the group voted, quote, that a library of periodical publications be instituted for the use of the society. These newspapers, journals, and soon books would assist the members in their work as authors and editors of the monthly anthology. Donations began to arrive that very night, and I fear that the presence of Madeira may have complicated the record keeping, and we don't know exactly which volume came first. Within six months, the society's librarian, however, had even bolder ideas. This is that librarian, William Smith Shaw, shown in a portrait by Gilbert Stewart that hangs just here in the Gordon Newspaper Reading Room. If you haven't seen it, it's a wonderful work of art, worth a glance. Shaw, as you may know, was the son of Abigail Adams's younger sister Elizabeth, and he served as John Adams' private secretary during the president's years in the White House. He was an exceptionally erudite, bookish character. Unwell as a child, he reportedly read before he could speak in full sentences. And he was reading, I should mention, in Greek and Latin as well as English. He understood the importance of timely news for a functioning democracy. And he was very interested in making sure that the Anthology Society editors had access to a very lively reading room with all of the latest news resources. He decided then that not only would the collection started in the after-dinner discussion that previous year be sufficient, but in fact, they would aim to establish something called the Anthology Reading Room, quote, an agreeable place of resort, literary intercourse, and the pleasure of perusing the principal European and American periodicals. By the end of the year, the collection held by this group had become so large, they required rented rooms in a Congress Street building. And by early 1807, mere months after the first dinner, an idea had emerged to combine a reading room with a library, a cabinet of natural and antiquarian specimens, a repository of arts, a laboratory suited to experiments and observations in chemistry, astronomy, geography with a lecture hall. To quote the words of incorporation, this new institution was to be a fountain at which all who choose may gratify their thirst for knowledge. The name for this thinking person's institution is the one we know and love, a word that was both au courant and evocative of the classical era, it would be called the Boston Athenaeum. An Athenaeum, as defined in the 1720s, although intriguingly not discussed at length by classical authors, was thought to be a place of intellectual public discourse on the Acropolis in a site dedicated to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. The collection would grow by leaps and bounds. This was an era, you may recall, when colleges and universities were focused on pedagogical work but not research, You could go to Harvard and encounter a very tiny library indeed. Public libraries did not yet exist and commercial circulating libraries often consisted of one trunk of books that could be carried from place to place. Circulating libraries indeed were the antithesis of what the Boston Athenaeum sought to become. A circulating library after all, typically included fiction, sometimes in French, often loaned to women, suspected of corrupting their morals, not to be encouraged. The Boston Athenaeum, by contrast, would have a serious collection that would help readers understand the world. It would include works of nonfiction primarily in a range of languages, and those books, at least for the first couple of decades of our existence, would stay on site. The collection grew in part through the indefatigable energy of Shaw himself One of his counterparts on what would become the Athenaeum's board of trustees would say, that dog Shaw goes everywhere. He knows everyone, everybody knows him. If he sees a book, pamphlet or manuscript, oh, sir, the Athenaeum must have those. Well, have it he will and have it he must and have it he does. For he seldom goes out of a house without having something under his arm and his large pockets sewn on purpose all crammed. Now he never refuses anything whatever. With him, a book is a book, a pamphlet is a pamphlet, a manuscript, a manuscript, etc. If I had given it to any of you gentlemen, you would have put it in your pockets, and some days later, you would accidentally have found something there, all in atoms about which you recalled nothing. Now that Shaw will preserve them like the apple of my eye, and after my death, he will perhaps publish them and give me that reputation which I never had during life our early catalogers would inherit the consequences of Shaw's collecting habits. In 1809, he purchased approximately 500 books from the widow of General Henry Knox, George Washington's Secretary of War, a Boston bookseller, and a great intellectual. Many of you know that a large number of the Knox collection books are visible now in cabinets displayed on the fourth floor of this building. The proprietors deposited additional works there, including their own collections, which they made available for the use of others. And the word proprietor, I should explain, dates to the beginning of our history. We were a library founded in a manner akin to a joint stock company. Everyone purchased a share and contributed what they could and had access to the materials. Also from the beginning, we were available to those who weren't shareholders, but who were curious to use the collections and the mechanisms by which we accomplished that, readers' tickets or daily passes or family subscriptions changed over the years, but the basic idea has remained the same. John Quincy Adams is perhaps the best example of someone who made his own library available. When he departed on a diplomatic mission to Russia in 1809, he deposited his personal collection of nearly 6,000 volumes with the Boston Athenaeum. We were, in other words, within two years of our founding, one of the most substantial libraries in North America. Those who weren't proprietors also gave. Bishop Cheveris, the first Catholic Bishop of Boston, donated 82 titles between 1810 and 1823. And in 1810, the Athenaeum published a catalog of its collection, 266 pages, This table of contents gives some sense of the breadth of the holdings. I'm not sure if the resolution of this slide is good enough, but if you can see, it starts with theology, metaphysics, ethics, and ecclesiastical history, goes on to include mathematics, chemistry, natural history, arts and sciences, fine arts, Greek and Latin authors, dictionaries and grammars of modern languages, history, biography, topography, voyages and travels, poetry and dramatic works, miscellanies, periodical works, including newspapers, and tracks, something we will return to later. As the collections grew, the Athenaeum would move to larger rented rooms and then to the former parish house of King's Chapel, purchased for an enviable $9,000 just around the corner in 1809 to house 7,000 volumes. The collections continued to grow. I was particularly amused to note in researching this talk that a distinguished judge, the Honorable Samuel Danforth, donated more than two dozen books on alchemy in the second decade of the 19th century. Other collections were more exotic. These are images from an album of Tapa specimens, Polynesian bark cloth, which entered the collection around 1815. And with the collections growing at this rate and readers booming, plans were devised to create an elegant classical building Regrettably, they failed to materialize. And by 1821, the books were becoming damaged from overcrowding. They were being stacked in double rows. You would move one book off the shelf and behind it would be another row of books. The pages were mangled, the covers were damaged. We were using a space that had only four rooms at the most, possibly three. One room we rented to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, another held John Quincy Adams Library on deposit and everything else in the Athenaeum's collection was in the remaining room or possibly two rooms. Then at our darkest hour, an extraordinary benefactor emerged. Here he is, James Perkins, the wealthy China trade merchant who in 1822 arranged in the days before his death to leave his home on Pearl Street, the area that's now Post Office Square, wholly transformed to the Athenaeum. He had been one of our founding subscribers and later a trustee and he believed in the importance of making our library available and allowing it to grow. Within days of Perkins' death, the trustees sought permission of his widow to commission a just completed portrait from life by Gilbert Stuart. And this is that portrait that you see. 40 Bostonians subscribe to raise the $200 to commission Stewart to make this work. And ours is the more larger elaborate version of the portrait suited to the public nature of the space and it hangs in the next room. This was in fact the first work of art to, ather the, to enter the Athenaeum's collection as a commission and it would help to inaugurate one of the great collections of American portraits held by any public institution. We don't know exactly what the house looked like that the Athenaeum received. This plate is actually the earliest extant image of the exterior that we see. We know that like many homes of leading Bostonians at this time, it was a double house shared with another prominent family. It was absolutely enormous. It's a little bit easier to see. In fact, in this image, a book illustration based on the picture on the plate, and you could see the front of the house, which the Athenaeum received first, the back of the house, which the trustees were able to acquire, and behind it was a stable yard that we'll return to shortly. Originally a two-family townhouse with an L, the space was united and remodeled to create a sizable structure, with a librarian's office, reading room, conversation room, something I think is still so vital to our activities here on the first floor, as well as space for the American Academy, and 12 rooms of books on the upper floors. So much space that members reported getting lost when they went to look for something to read. Nature, however, abhors a vacuum and soon more collections arrive to fill the void. The theological library deposited 1500 books, including the King's Chapel collection in 1823, Shaw was collecting tracts voraciously. Tracts are are pamphlets, ephemeral, printed publications that are of the moment, and because of that, not something that would typically be treasured or saved. Because of Shaw's remarkable collecting activities, the Boston Athenaeum has one of the most comprehensive and complete collection of tracts of any library in North America, primarily materials related to Boston. Um, We are in the process of digitizing them now. So visit the website daily and you'll see more marvelous little pamphlets, sometimes broadsides describing a salacious murder, for example, will come up on the website. In 1826, the Athenaeum purchased the architectural library of Alexander Paris, whom you may remember was the architect of Quincy Market and St. Paul's Church. And a plan together with the Boston Medical Library in 1826 added 2,000 medical books to the shelves. When Shaw died in 1826, he left an enormous collection in terrible disorder. 75 books were missing, 100 were damaged. Happily, we had someone waiting in the wings to restore order. The mathematician, ocean navigator, and Athenaeum trustee, Nathaniel Bowditch, then head of our library committee, knew exactly how to address the disarray. He brought in the physician and naturalist, Seth Bass, who had organized the East India Marine Society's artifact collections, and had him systematize the Athenaeum's collections for the first time. Every item was assigned a number, given a shelf and a box, and those two were assigned numbers. And then, in a masterful example of good library practice, all of those numerical locations were annotated in the printed catalog. Indeed, they developed one of the earliest systems for arranging the collection by shelf, and they published an updated catalog with those numbers, perhaps not realizing that as the library continued to grow and everything moved over by one, those numbers would quickly become obsolete, a matter that a later librarian here would address. At the same time, sculpture was beginning to occupy the reading rooms, and artists were visiting to draw from the collection of plaster casts, donated in 1823 by our trustee Augustus Thorndike, which included an enviable collection. Full-scale casts of the Apollo Belvedere, the Belvedere Torso, the Venus de' Medici, the Capitoline Venus, the Borghese Gladiator. I could go on and on. We're looking at Diana the Huntress, best known probably today from the version in Versailles, we don't know the appearance of those rooms, so I'm cheating a little and showing you a later image. This is a daguerreotype by Southworth and Hawes from the mid 1850s, now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which shows the Boston Athenaeum's collection of plaster casts in their subsequent display in this building after it opened. Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose father had been a founder of the Athenaeum, present at that first after dinner discussion, reported on the effect of placing such works in the reading room as quote, attracting the eye in every corner from the tedious joys of writing and reading and inspiring the beholder to feel instantly the spirit of the connoisseur stealing over him. It must have been the most extraordinary environment which we've retained a little of now in 1826, supported by gifts from James Perkins' sons, James Jr. and Thomas Handeseed Perkins, whose portrait is behind the slide screen here, so I'm having to project it in a postmodern moment. <laughs> with the help from the sons, the Athenaeum demolished a stable and shed and constructed a separate three-story structure with space for the American Academy of Arts and Science, artist studios used at times by Gilbert Stuart and Washington Alston, a 500 seat lecture hall on the second floor, what we wouldn't give for that now, a picture gallery with 12 foot ceilings illuminated by skylights on the top floor of the equally enviable dimensions of 50 by 60 feet, meaningfully larger than the exhibition space we have now. We don't know exactly what the first exhibitions look like, Oddly, even though they were frequented by artists, none of them seem to have sketched the interior. Although if any of you find something that you think might possibly be a candidate, please let me know. (laughs) It's not impossible that someone might find an image. And so I'll show you a later image of a Boston Athenaeum exhibition right after we opened this building in 1855. And this gives you a sense of the style of display in that era. This was a moment, of course, before effective artificial light for works of art, and the standard was to have skylights that would illuminate all of the pictures evenly. And so all of the display spaces were on walls with no windows. It sounds claustrophobic, but with the skylights, which could be opened and closed, using a pulley system and ropes, and with different kinds of awnings and canopies to shade the light, it was quite effective. The technique would be to put the most significant pictures on the line at a center point, smaller things below and very large things above deliberately tilted at an angle so you could see them when you were standing underneath and also so that too much dust wouldn't build up at the top. The Athenaeum by this time then was not only the city's primary library, we had become when we had our first public art exhibition in 1827, the city's only high-minded non-commercial venue for art exhibitions. And in that way, we were a great contributor to artistic education in Boston. Our first annual exhibition of paintings, unusual in the United States at that time for being organized by connoisseurs and collectors rather than practicing artists looking to sell their work was a tremendous success. Admission could be had for 25 cents a day or extraordinary value of 50 cents for the whole season, and the season garnered $4,000, a huge amount in an era when we could purchase a house for slightly more than that. The profits allowed the trustees to begin to purchase and commission works of art and art books and works that we would now describe as art on paper. There isn't time this afternoon to show you all of those early treasures that entered the collection, but I'll wet your appetite with a few and encourage you to come to our special collections reading room to see more. In 1828, the first painting purchased from the proceeds of the exhibitions, for $100, was this portrait, still attributed to Annibale Carracci, which, like the portrait of Shaw, hangs in the next room It's very little, it's in the corner. It's a masterpiece of Italian Baroque painting. It's worth looking at. Exhibitions of approximately 250 paintings sometimes included selections featuring the work of a single artist, a kind of monographic retrospective show within the larger show. And one of the most expansive of those was a memorial show of work by Gilbert Stuart organized with rapid speed in the months following the artist's death in 1828. The portraits that are now universally known as the Athenaeum portraits of George and Martha Washington, painted from life by Gilbert Stuart in 1796, and sold by his widow to the Athenaeum by a group of subscribers for $1,500, would become icons in the history of American art and the most famous objects the Athenaeum would ever own, They were sold, as some of you may know, in 1979 and can be visited now at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. In 1830, the Athenaeum became an original subscriber of Audubon's Double Elephant Folio of the Birds of America and we were able to support the artist by giving him exhibitions here as well. In that same year, the Athenaeum acquired at Cunningham's Auction Rooms on the corner of Milk and Federal Streets, presumably by our librarian, Seth Bass, for $6, the first bound edition of Los Caprichos to enter an American collection. Goya was here from the early days too. In 1831, oh, sorry, here's the Goya, slides out of order. In 1831, we acquired Oriental Scenery, a wonderful British volume depicting landscapes in India, by. Thomas and William Daniels, and in 1833, we purchased Giovanni Paolo Panini's Interior of St. Peter's Cathedral from 1756. I think these few selections give you a sense of the scope and ambition of the collections at that time. We were acquiring European as well as American work, old masters as well as contemporary items, things that were largely documentary, such as the Birds of America, and things that were largely imaginative. Our acquisitions by subscription, purchase, gifts from collectors and artists, and bequests, would amount to about 100 paintings a year in the 1820s and 30s. That number reduced to about 50 pictures a year in the 1840s and 50s, and wouldn't taper off significantly until the Civil War. Likewise, during that same period, the first half of the 19th century, the Athenaeum really saw a golden age of readers and writers, which would extend through the 19th century and arguably today. Nathaniel Hawthorne used the Athenaeum regularly when he was working at the Boston Customs House, and other regulars included Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and the literary salon hostess Annie Adams Field, shown here in her portrait by Sargent, which belongs to the Athenaeum, but is currently on loan to Colorado College for a summer exhibition. Oliver Wendell Holmes, shown here in our portrait by Thomas Hicks, was also a regular reader. This period of intellectual expansiveness and bold thinking was riddled with what we might find conflicting social impulses to delimit knowledge and access. I've been especially amused to read about our Scruples collection formed in the 1840s. This was a kind of approach to censorship and I think the best object to illustrate it is our first edition of Mall Flanders issued in 1840, which was kept in a special place we didn't want it to fall into the hands of the morally vulnerable, such as the sons of the proprietors who frequented the building regularly. And so it was kept in a vault, or later when we outgrew space in the vault, in areas of the Athenaeum that had a kind of wire fence within them. One would have to ask to see this particular book And amusingly, it's one of the most frequently rebound, well-worn volumes in the entire collection. There's almost nothing left of it, and we have multiple copies. This practice was finally eliminated in 1946, but really reached its apogee, surprisingly, in the early 20th century, when at one time, the Athenaeum went as far as to burn books. Banned in Boston had its impact here as well. Of course, while one had to ask special permission to read *Mall Flanders, if the book was put into a reader's hands, they could sit right next to a sculpture of a nude female <laughs> while perusing it. And we're looking here at the Venus Victrix, just behind me, which John Lowell Jr. bequeathed to the Athenaeum, it was a contemporary sculpture which would make it all the racier because her figure type is very au courant for the mid 19th century, made by Horatio Greenow. And you probably know the story. This is Venus when she's been awarded the golden apple by Paris in the beauty contest that would launch the start of the Trojan War. Indeed, we were very active in contemporary sculpture at this time and I can't resist showing you one more work of art. This is a great masterpiece. Thomas Crawford's Orpheus and Cerberus, commissioned by the artist in Rome in 1841 through the advocacy of Charles Sumner, Sumner had seen this in the artist's studio as a model made in plaster, thought it was worthy of a public audience and rallied the troops back in Boston, arranged for Athenaeum members to subscribe for its purchase. And when it was complete, Sumner himself curated the one object exhibition in the top floor exhibition galleries in the special building with the lecture hall that had been where the stables were on Pearl Street. He decorated the walls with red fabric and covered all of the windows with a sheer red gauze. It must have been the most extraordinarily sumptuous environment. It was a great success as well. However, things were changing at that location. It was changing in character. What had once been vast, open, blissfully quiet reading rooms were crowded out by noise. The area near Pearl Street was becoming commercial. And once again, as our collections grew, there wasn't much room for the books. The Athenaeum began to look for new spaces because as the Boston Post put it bluntly in 1844, the Athenaeum is in the wrong place. The neglect of its library, which is the consequence, extends to the exhibition of specimens of fine arts in its collection and the annual proceeds of exhibitions have dwindled down from $2,000 to less than $200. We were no longer a fashionable place to visit, and the crowd stopped coming to see the shows. The crowding would only be exacerbated in the later 1840s for the best of reasons. In 1846, John Bromfield donated $25,000 to create a purchase fund for books, something we draw on almost daily now. The very first book that we bought with this extraordinary donation was a copy of the Nuremberg Chronicle, that great cornerstone of printing in which Albrecht Durer participated from 1493 and ours is a hand colored copy. We would also at about that time acquire the largest extant portion of George Washington's personal library In 1848, a group of Bostonians saved the library from the ignominy of its departure for the British library by raising the funds necessary to keep it. They actually failed to raise the entire amount required to buy it, but the charlatan of a bookseller based in Vermont who'd been trying to foist it off on one big institution after another, spent the down payment before he learned we couldn't come up with the rest. So happily we got to keep it. And you'll see many of them upstairs in the trustees room now in a replica of George Washington's original book press at Mount Vernon. In 1843, realizing how crowded the Pearl Street home was, the trustees formed a committee on removing the Athenaeum, seeking a better home. To finance it, they issued new shares, and that was the last moment we would greatly increase the number of proprietors, currently fixed at 1,049. This committee assumed that exhibitions, supplemented by lectures, would generate sufficient income to underwrite the library functions. First, the group purchased a plot of land near here on Tremont Street and launched an open architectural competition for a new building. They didn't like the results, they sold the land, they bought the piece of land we are in right at this moment and started again. But they realized that it had taken so much time to hold the first architectural competition, they could gain some efficiency in the process if they invited simply their favorite finalists to participate this time. In the end, they selected the designs of this man, Edward Clark Cabot, and we're seeing him here in a daguerreotype owned by the Athenaeum, made by John Adams Whipple in the 1850s. So this is when Cabot would have been in his 30s. He was only 28 years old when he won the competition, however, and probably equally dapper. Look at that wonderful tie he's wearing. Cabot, intriguingly, was the grandson of Thomas Handeseed Perkins and the nephew of the then president of the board. Rumors abounded that the the awarding of the competition had not been entirely fair. Rumors seemingly substantiated to a certain extent when the young architect who had never in fact built anything anywhere before was given a partner in a very experienced engineer, George Minot Dexter, who would help him figure out how to make the building stand up. (laughs) Cabot based his design on Andrea Palladio's wonderful buildings in the Veneto, possibly something such as this one inset. So the big image is the facade of the Boston Athenaeum as rendered by Cabot in a book of designs that he donated to us upon the completion of the project, which is a wonderful album available for you to see in the print room if you're curious. And this is an inset image by Scamazzi of a Palladio Villa that might have related to ours, although there needn't be any one particular source. I think it's perhaps most interesting to note that Cabot was thinking in a very bold and unusual manner for Boston at this moment in the mid 19th century in adding a Northern Italian Renaissance palace to the Beacon Hill neighborhood. We wish that we had his original designs or his working drawings, It may have been that they were actually consumed during the process of constructing the building. It may have been that a later falling out between Cabot and Dexter, the more experienced engineer, could have led to their deliberate destruction. What we do have, however, is the album. And here's the cover and the book plate inscribed by Cabot himself. And it gives you a sense of his plans for the building, some of which we still will recognize today, other aspects will have changed so let's see if I can point out some familiar things. Here is our facade, of course. This is the first floor, which you can see a little better in this black and white slide. You would enter here in a space very different from the space we know now, and we'll return to that later. This is a committee room, and it's the space that would have been rented by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. This room that we are in now had a slightly different configuration, and it was used for the display of sculpture. There was a reading room in the bow room and a reading room where the circulation desk is now. Upstairs, this word museum could be misleading. It wasn't actually where the works of fine art were shown, it was where the antiquarian specimens and natural history cabinet was kept. This was the librarian's office, enviably palatial, and this was the reading room where all of the books in the entire library were intended to be housed. And if you look carefully, you see these pinwheel devices. These were the um, spiral staircases that we recognize now in one example on the second floor in which the architect originally intended to have with great frequency in order to allow readers to reach the gallery level. Upstairs, the third floor at that time was the top floor of the building was an exhibition space with no windows whatsoever, only skylights, and a very tall ceiling height to allow for the display of multiple rows of paintings salon style. So all of these were painting galleries. The building construction didn't quite go to plan. I'm giving you a sneak preview of when it worked out and opened, but in fact, In the first nine months, the entire cost allocated for the project, $59,000, was spent on erecting the facade. There was nothing behind it. The Athenaeum was out of funds. Rumors were swirling about and had reached the newspaper that perhaps there had been some unauthorized expenditure. Instead, it simply appears that they didn't quite know what they were getting into building the building. And two years later, in the summer of 1849, the Athenaeum had only reached the stage of opening the second floor to members. It opened with a temporary iron staircase. It must have felt very much that readers were coming to a building site when they arrived in the morning. And this is that second floor as it appeared when it opened in 1849. It was unusual in using alcoves, the alcoves we still love to read in. This of course is a device for library design that dates back to monastic libraries, but was becoming old fashioned by the middle of the 19th century when the Athenaeum adopted it. Already librarians seeking efficiency were thinking about separating readers from book stacks. Aren't we lucky that our library still has them? This space housed the entire collection of 40,000 books, the librarian's office, the daily operations of the staff. It opened at six in the morning in the summer, and it stayed open late because it was illuminated by gas candelabras. If you look at this wonderful daguerreotype in the George Eastman House collection made by Southworth and Hawes in 1853, you can see the second floor as it was used And you may find it helpful to remember as you look at this image that daguerreotypes reverse the appearance of the original. So this is a mirror image of the second floor as we know it. And what would later become the drum stack that blocks the end of the room now was open with the bay window. I love the way everyone's sitting in chairs the way your grandmother told you you shouldn't or you would break them because we still have those chairs and they didn't break them by leaning back. Some are looking at the camera, Summer slouched over, a librarian is busy cataloging things. If you look very carefully, you see this fence here. The Scruples collection was growing. We had quite a lot behind the fence at that moment. It had grown from just a vault. The sculpture was lining the rows and In subsequent pictures you'll get to see evidence of our newfangled lighting system that was allowing readers to work longer hours. The staircase that we saw in that first image of the design for the vestibule was becoming a matter of some interest. It still hadn't been built in a permanent form and Cabot was willing to open the Athenaeum up to ideas from other architects. There was a competition to have an affordable alternative, cost now being foremost in the mind of the trustees. And the idea selected was designed by Hammett Billings, inspired by Charles Sumner. He of the Thomas Crawford exhibition, our US Senator. Sumner had been to St. Peter's Basilica and loved Bernini's glorious steps at the Vatican with their elegant proportions that brought pedestrians up one level and he designed what would become one of the central features of this building, but sadly only for a brief period of time. The vestibule and Sumner staircase were so renowned and made so much sense. I hope you'll indulge me if I show you a few pictures of this all at once. This is the way you would have entered the building, and you would have seen our wonderful plaster after Houdon of George Washington signaling the presence of the Washington Library here, and you would have had the opportunity to ascend this incredibly elegant, gracious staircase. Its proportions were so grand that it was possible for us to hang the enormous portraits we can barely move through our building now. The very large scale portraits that you see when you first enter the Athenaeum in the vestibule don't fit in the stairwell, and they don't fit in the elevator. If we have to move them between floors, we take them outside and then we get a crane and we move them in through a terrace on another floor of our building. Here's another view and you can see some of the plaster casts. Here's the Borghese gladiator pointing the way in. And up the stairs, Ganymede who's now on the fifth floor. A painting Um, after Domenichino of St. Michael that would later go to the Museum of Fine Arts, Thomas Handesee Perkins, who's now behind this screen, and up. When the Athenaeum finally opened, we think in September of 1851, it had a sculpture gallery on the first floor in this room and here is the appearance of it. Here's a nicer stereopticon view in case one wanted a souvenir to review in three dimensions afterwards. We know that by, I'll go over one slide. By 1852, when this photograph of the exterior was taken, we had to have been exhibiting paintings because we were advertising them shamelessly. Our current tasteful sign board is nothing compared to this. Look how it's advertising the Dusseldorf Gallery. (laughs) We might as well have had someone out there with a sandwich board. We know a little bit about how those galleries would have looked from some paintings, and this is the one I skipped before. It actually hangs in my office, so if you pay me a visit to share your ideas about the Athenaeum, you'll get to see it in person. It's by Enrico and emigrant artist to Boston. And it shows the appearance of the painting galleries on the third floor at a slightly later date. We're looking at them in this painting in 1876, um, something we'll return to later. But it's nice because it gives you a sense of how the rooms functioned. They had very dark walls. They were illuminated by the skylights. And if you look closely, you can see these ropes that would have operated the various pulleys. And the artist here shows you what he was doing, making sketches by leaving his sketchbook open on one of the benches. This was a building with all of the modern conveniences, a cast iron steam furnace, plumbing and water closets, a basement resident for the janitor and his family, and for a book bindery operated by a commercial bookbinder. but something essential to have on site. The building included space designated for conversation but interestingly, didn't include a lecture hall because our lectures had declined in popularity following the founding of the Lowell Institute using a bequest of John Lowell Jr. in 1836. Indeed, the lecture hall in the Pearl Street Gallery had been repurposed as a sculpture gallery shortly before we moved. With this glorious new building open at last, the collections continued to grow. In 1854, Samuel May Jr. wrote to the librarian Charles Folsom offering a wonderful gift, which is just one example of what we were acquiring at this time, a complete run of The Liberator, the abolitionist newspaper, a weekly four-page broadsheet launched in 1831, and the Athenaeum is unique in holding a complete run of this very important periodical until it ceased needing to publish in 1865. In 1856, Frederick Poole was appointed head librarian and he continued to expand the collections and to change the way in which we classified them. That early impulse Seth Bass had was now followed by a keener emphasis on numbering and lettering every location. The building was filled with signs. Here too, you see more of them. This is an image of the second floor, of course. and here again. Indeed, the collections were growing so rapidly that we'd been in the building less than 10 years when we began to think about what we would do to store the books. We were so challenged for space that the members of the Fine Arts Committee began to disagree with the members of the Library Committee. The Library Committee wanted access to the third floor to store books. The gallery that we see in this room now wasn't original when this was a sculpture display space but was added to house more books. And eventually, a group of trustees very interested in the fine arts, in a story too long to tell this afternoon, but which I'd be glad to direct you to reading about if you're curious, would help to found the Museum of Fine Arts as a way to house the collection we could no longer fit here, intriguingly, In a budget maneuver I dare say we won't repeat, the Athenaeum continued for decades to purchase works of art for the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts, which never even darkened the door of this building. They were chosen, bought, delivered immediately to the MFA, a nice arrangement for them. And here you can see the Museum of Fine Arts, founded in 1870 um, with its wonderful Copley Square building which opened in 1876. The Athenaeum, after filling the third floor with books, purchased three adjacent buildings on Tremont Place, rented them because we couldn't quite afford the expansion, but waited for the opportunity to grow. Of course, all during this period, we were very active. This is the moment when, in 1871, we acquired the Schoolcraft collection of Native American materials donated by the widow of one of the great Indian agents, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. This is also the moment, and some of you will know this from perusing a display on the second floor last year when Louisa May Alcott was actively using the collection, reading a wonderful range of things from the highfalutin to penny dreadfuls. This was Importantly, a moment when we would identify a classification system that was easier to sustain than labeling every object with its shelf location, than continually relabeling it as we moved it down the shelf. This was when Charles Amy Cutter became our head librarian in 1869 and invented the card catalog in 1872. The first time he did it, it was as a kind of organizational preparation for publishing another bound catalog of the collection. He snipped to pieces a previous printed list on hundreds of pages and put every individual discrete item on a separate piece of paper so that he could interfill with new acquisitions until he realized that those separate cards were actually a much more useful system, which could be infinitely expanded. And here is an example of our cards which we retained even after we went digital. Um, and it's open to one of the Shakespeare drawers, which are still downstairs. In fact, I've been in correspondence with an artist based in France this week who's going to come here as a resident in the summer and make an artist book inspired by the cards. So stay tuned. Even with Cutter's great organizational skill and, Some efforts to begin to wean our holdings to make room, we were still very pressed for space. And sadly, the next area that would be transformed would be the Sumner staircase, which was demolished in 1889 and replaced with a more space efficient, less elegant design by Edward Clark Cabot. And here is the revised design, which replaces the grand staircase with something much more efficient. You can see that he tried to retain some of the original decorative elements, but in fact, it's quite changed, and I had a lot of fun looking at our historical photos and putting them side by side and noticing details such as this one. In the original design, there's this marvelous tiny arch that leaps between the big arches, and the insect panels have these exuberant corners that seem to protrude, elements that became more severe and simplified when the vestibule was redesigned. This of course isn't the area where the circulation desk is now. I hope that makes sense. It's hard to visualize all of this. Um, I'll give you a sense of how the building was beginning to look a little bit filled up. These are some images from 1902 and we're looking at the first floor bow room. And so that modern staircase would be behind this wall. Here's the same space in 1950, showing you it hasn't changed much. By making that change, we gained some space for books, but it didn't really alleviate the long-term problem. The Athenaeum, after all, was continuing to collect, and although we don't have time to discuss the scope of the collection's growth in the 20th century, it's worth mentioning that we brought some of our great treasures in in the end of the 19th and early 20th century. For example, we were buying books from the Kelmscott Press, such as this designed by William Morris and Edward Colley Byrne Jones, The Well at the World's End, as they were being issued. In the same decade, we reached the decision to remove books of purely professional, technical interest. We returned most of the medical books to the Medical Library Association, retaining only works related to the history of medicine or the history of printed books. Similarly, our collections of materials related to the law waxed and then waned. In 1900, we reclaimed the committee room, now the newspaper reading room, from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We made improvements when we could, replacing the heating system, installing electric lighting, and here you can see those lamps, both on the tables and in the chandeliers. But by the turn of the century, the challenges of crowded shelves and outdated mechanical systems were becoming shadowed by other concerns. Staff, trustees, and increasing numbers of the members were beginning to question the 10 Beacon Street location. The series of images I'm about to show you will explain why. When the Athenaeum opened, we were in the most extraordinary location, very prominent in the landscape. This is John Bachman's bird's eye view of Boston from 1850. We weren't even finished yet, but he he drew in the avenue as he knew it would appear. Here we are when we opened in 1855, very elegant, surrounded by domestic structures of a comparatively modest size. Our relationship to the street was quite inviting. We looked like a destination, a real monument in the landscape. Here in an image from about 1860, you can see what an elegant residential setting we we held, how easy it would have been for our neighbors to walk here, to read. By 1895, however, the tone of the neighborhood had changed, become more bustling, more commercial, more crowded. By 1902, the effect of new buildings on either side of us had the unintended appearance of dwarfing the Athenaeum, We were now one of the smaller structures on the street and it had become dark inside the building as a result. Indeed, the Athenaeum at that moment was entirely different from this building that we know and love. It's hard to imagine, but the original windows were quite small in proportion to the building. The gallery levels didn't have glass floors, they had wooden floors. It was remarkably dark. There was concern it wasn't safe. We had wooden bookshelves and they were sagging. The galleries were sagging. There was a problem with a cesspit at the basement level, which I won't discuss in great detail. (laughs) But I'll give you a a sense of of what the building looked like at, at this moment because it would become a real turning point in our history. Here's an image of the first floor from 1901 and another from the same time. Very little light, very crowded. The Bow Room with its delivery desk in 1902. A view back from the Long Room to the Bow Room. Another view of the Long Room now. The second floor. Still beautiful but dense. This was the art room on the second floor. It's the space that's now the digital lab, our photography studio, had been a member's computer room. It was chock-a-block with art books, with some works on paper that members could look at themselves and with lots of reproductions of art and original works of art. This is the cage where rare materials and elements in the scruples collection were kept. And as we moved to the third floor, designed for paintings without any windows at all, you could see how densely packed it was. It wasn't particularly welcoming as a space. One of my favorite spaces on the third floor is here. This was called the dollared room, dollar spelled like the unit of currency and That refers to one of the amusing devices in Cutter's classification system, Cutter, the inventor of the card catalog. To signify a book of great value, he would use a US dollar sign before the shelf mark. We think of this now as signaling to any would-be thieves, take this one first. (laughs) And this room had some of the most valuable books, including George Washington's library as it was kept at this time in this fanciful, sort of federalist revival kind of mannerist bookcase in one of the one of the great rooms on the third floor invented by Edward Clark Cabot nothing whatsoever to do with George Washington and his era but a kind of marvel of 1902 confection <laughs> faced with all of these challenges the dark the residential population moving elsewhere, some safety concerns, insufficient room for the books and for the members. At the 1901 meeting of the proprietors, a matter was put to the shareholders regarding the future of the Athenaeum. Should the Athenaeum attempt to improve its present site and find a way to stay here, or should it move, either to a piece of property not yet identified or to one that had been researched by the trustees? two adjacent lots available on the corner of Newberry and Arlington streets. Do you want to know how the vote turned out? I bet you'll be surprised. By a sizable majority, four to one, the proprietors voted to sell 10 and a half Beacon Street and to move to the back bay. After all, most of the members were beginning to reside there. This time, rather than awarding the design to anyone's nephew or grandson, there was an open, transparent architectural competition, won by the newly formed firm of Putnam and Cox, formed in fact by two recent MIT grads who created the firm to be eligible to enter the competition, William Edward Putnam Jr. and Alan Howard Cox, MIT graduates of graduates of MIT and Harvard in 1896 respectively, who probably met when they were both studying at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris earlier that year. Their design was extraordinary. Spacious, elegant, flooded with light, with a reading room overlooking the public garden where no tall buildings would ever encroach on the view, with locked storage for special collections, an exhibition gallery on the third floor, a fireproof structure, a large elevator, stacks for 300,000 volumes with room for expansion. It's an enviable design in the latest style. I should mention this particular drawing is not held by the Athenaeum, but is owned by the Smithsonian, but we do have the side elevation and watercolor in our collection, if you're curious to see it. It seemed like an excellent idea, But time was working against us. There were tenants on the site who had leases that would extend for another 18 months. And during that period, a remarkable person, Amy Lowell, the formidable uh, poet who would receive the Pulitzer Prize after her death, decided that she didn't want the Athenaeum to move. She was then in her early 20s, and her friend, Catherine Peabody Loring, whom we perhaps remember best as Alice James's companion, would decide that they wanted to defeat this plan because of their sentimental attachment to 10 1⁄2 Beacon Street. Although this building was at that time too young to be considered an architectural landmark, changes, very substantial changes, had been made as recently as the previous decade when the staircase was changed. It became a cause that divided the Athenaeum's community. There were preservationists aligned on both sides. Those who felt we had not respected the integrity of this building from the beginning and would do well to move. Those who loved their fond memories of childhood hours spent here. Publications emerged. There was a pamphlet war. The board of trustees tried to stay above the fray and displayed models of this building and the building that might have been constructed. There were public discussions, and in December of 1903, there was a debate followed by a postcard vote in which 750 proprietors participated, and by 15 votes, the move was defeated. The trustees agreed to this immediately, and rather than plan to move, looked at ways in which they could refurbish this building. This photograph, which I found lurking in an online archive which has not yet been published, I believe documents that moment in 1902 when the plan was made to remain here at the Athenaeum. The picture was taken by George T. Murray, a news photographer active in Boston at this time. He must have been preparing an article, for example, about the change of mind. The Athenaeum took the funds it would have spent building a new facility and launched a series of emergency repairs. We had been early adapters of electric lighting, but all of that was dangerous and needed to be replaced. So we undertook new wiring. We did some fireproofing. We changed the heating system. We addressed the the yucky mess in the basement. We installed an elevator in 1905, an invention from the 1850s that the members had been asking for for quite a long time, but we ran out of money. All of the money that would have gone to the new building had by 1908 been expended on patches and repairs and the insertion of book stacks where the circulation desk is now. Then something happened that changed the minds of the members. In 1911, there was a disastrous fire at the New York State Capitol in Albany, which housed the New York State Library. It's remembered now as one of the worst library disasters in history. This is the main reading room after the fire. And this is the appearance of the same room photographed just a month before. It was such a devastating event. It captured the attention of those who cared about libraries everywhere and prompted our proprietor, Charles Francis Adams Jr the great-grandson of John Adams, to go to the Boston Post with what surprised readers one Saturday morning as an above-the-fold headline comment decrying the Boston Athenaeum as a fire trap and its present condition as morally criminal. This is uh, Adams at an earlier moment, he in the wonderful chair, the only photograph I found of him taken during the Civil War In 1912, the proprietors agreed overwhelmingly that this building was not acceptable, that the repairs had not been sufficient, and the board formed a committee for a modern building. They looked again at the Arlington and Newbury Street site, they dusted off the Putnam and Cox plans, but it had all become too expensive. It was no longer possible to move. A committee on rebuilding was formed and invited Bigelow and Wandsworth, the successors to George Minot Dexter's firm, he was the engineer who had helped with the original building to design an addition. And the addition they made is the building we know now. Not surprisingly, it won universal approval. They would make major changes, which involved gutting our building. Here are all of the books being removed They're being slid down this ramp in crates in 1911 while workers stand around as has always been the case. (laughs) They took down all of the internal structure because it was vulnerable to fire, gutted the entire building and recreated it copying as much of the original architectural detail as they could, but reinventing other aspects of it. This was the moment when the very structure of our building changed, because we began to use iron, cast iron bookcases. Our book stacks are now an integral part of the structure of this building, and we use steel in the design. What the architects would do was to make light a space that had been very dark and to make all of it fireproof. Most significantly, they created the fourth and fifth floors building on top of the building and made the wonderful fifth floor that we all treasure today. Of course, it's been interesting, I thought, as I've looked through historical photographs of the fifth floor to see how differently it must have resonated when it first opened there's a way in which what we think of as a timeless design looks very much of its period, very Georgian and colonial revival when you see it with the decorative sheer curtains that once covered the windows in the view. The fourth floor was added at this time with the intention of using it for offices. The trustees room was invented and added to the top of the drum stack which was filled in where there had been a bow originally with window views to the harbor just behind our slide screen here. The trustees room too looks charmingly, self-consciously quaint when you see it decorated in this manner as it originally was. The stack itself was a marvel of modern library design glass floors with plenty of space for air circulation, and high density book shelving. Ironically, this design which emerged after the Albany fire is now thought to be highly imperfect because of the amount of oxygen it permits, which would not be ideal in fire conditions. But not to worry, we have sprinklers everywhere and we're very careful. (laughs) We filled in at the other side of the building with a new staircase and we took advantage of the spaces, these tiny little interstices between 10 and a half Beacon Street and our neighbors and created the Bornheimer Room behind me and the stack of offices and reading rooms that begin on this floor with the membership office. I'll show you just a couple more pictures of things as they appeared after the renovation. Here is the vestibule before and after and you could see the careful attention with which it was reconstructed. And the first floor, the space we're in now, which originally had a slightly different configuration and included reading areas. Of course, as is inevitably the case, when you build something anew, collections arrive in droves and this was no exception. No sooner had we reopened the building than we received one of the largest gifts in our history. In 1934, the Earl of Camperdown, who was then a resident of Boston, bequeathed 4,600 books to the Athenaeum, including this exquisite 15th century French Book of Hours. We would repurpose other spaces in the building as part of this campaign And the room that had been the fine art stack, the crowded reading room with the portrait of Perkins hanging on the wall that we saw in earlier slides, would become this exhibition room. And we would continue to make improvements all through the 20th century. We would automate the elevator in 1952. We would reappoint the exterior masonry in the mid-1960s when we would also reconfigure the use of locked rooms and add an additional floor of space in those locked areas. We would install automatic humidifiers. In 1978, later than most other libraries, we would switch from the cutter classification system, which we had held onto for reasons of sentiment and pride, and move to the Library of Congress classification system, although anyone who's looked for a book here knows The books classified in the Cutter system remain classified in Cutter, and there are certain things we still classify according to that system, biography, for example, because our readers find it useful. In 1983, we installed climate controls in the locked rooms and the print rooms so that our rare materials would be kept safe. In 1993, we purchased the basement and sub-basement of 14 Beacon Street. In 1997, We replaced the card catalog with a computer catalog not long after we would launch our website. This is my former colleague, Robert Cruz, sitting at the first computer terminal owned by the Boston Athenaeum. And at the turn of this century, even more renovations followed. And I'll show you only two of the wonderful suite of photographs that the photographer Shelburne Thurber took at the time of those renovations, between 1999 and 2002, which capture the dramatic changes we undertook then. We are looking, I should explain, at an image in the basement, underneath the adjacent building uphill from us, number 14 beacon, owned by the Congregational Association, we bought what had been their lecture hall called Pilgrim Hall, appropriately, for the Congregationalists, and renovated it. And it's now divided into two stories, some of which has the conservation lab and the art books, and the lower story has functional spaces that we use for our systems. Here's the conservation lab. As part of that same campaign, We were able to rent and renovate space that we don't own but we hope looks as if we own on the same floor we're on now and that includes the children's library. Turning again to that area of our building that we seem to rework every few years, we took the space that had once held the Sumner staircase and then the remodeled staircase and then book stacks and added there a seminar room where some of our reading groups meet. And we took the space that had been allocated for special collections at different times, and at one point for exhibitions that we saw in the previous black and white photograph, and turned it into a space for the study of rare materials. Not wanting to to be without exhibition galleries, we took space we rent from our neighbors in the congregational building and created exhibition galleries. As a result, we are, as I think I don't need to tell you, vibrant again, and also crowded again. <laughs> Our work now includes even more than preparing for the publication of a periodical. Today, we're busy with author talks. I'm showing you Amitav Ghosh, who visited last fall. With panel discussions, here's a timely topic that would have interested the newspaper men among our founders, a discussion of climate change organized with MIT and simulcast around the globe on the internet, expert insights. Here's our curator of rare books, Stanley Cushing, describing a wonderful story related to an object in the collection to a group of members. At a moment of instant access, our collections have expanded to include born digital materials. We know we need to compete with the instantaneous access that some commercial services give, and so we allow our members to read things online. JSTOR, for example, is a wonderful compendium of scholarly publications, primarily in the humanities. We recently added the Loeb Classical Library, a marvelous electronic, continuously updated scholarly edition of Greek and Latin classics. And we contribute to the world of knowledge in this way as well, by making our collections available online, and by welcoming anyone who's curious to learn about them to explore more in other ways. This is a screenshot of my own iPhone when we launched our app, which lets visitors to this floor of the building take a self-guided tour of the collection. Our collections likewise are reflecting the cultural productions of our time, as well as the importance of history. We're collecting contemporary works of art and artist books, but we're also facing challenges that probably won't be surprising at this point in the talk and not to worry I'm almost done. We're very crowded, for example. This is the chart of our attendance, and I think it's perhaps less important that you read the actual numbers than that you notice the general trend Whichever of the bars on the graph you follow, and they track members or general visitors or guests of members, attendance is increasing. These are people coming into our building over the course of the past decade. Intriguingly, our membership has declined slightly, less than 10% during that period, but use of this building on a daily basis has increased by 750%. This means that there are times when it's very crowded on the the fifth floor and hard for our members to find a seat, a seat in the library they have paid to hold a membership to sit inside. It also means that there are times when our events sell out or they're so crowded, we're not able to foster that sense of intimate community that we know is a valuable part of being a member of the Athenaeum. We realize that if we want to honor this sense of the Athenaeum as a community of diverse in, of diverse people who share in common a profound curiosity about the world, then we need to make the experience of being here something better than a mere commercial transaction. One shouldn't feel they've become a member when their credit card is swiped in the office. Being a member should be when you have that first electrifying conversation with someone you never thought you would meet here. When you have a serendipitous discovery in the stacks, you find an extraordinary book. When you go to a talk you're not sure will be interesting and something you hear changes the way you think about the world for the rest of the week. What we want to do now is make sure that that nucleus at the heart of our mission is the part that we foster most. We want our members to have access to the experts on our staff. And at the same time, we want general visitors who may well be future members of this library and meaningful contributors to our community to have an opportunity to learn about it in a way that isn't disruptive for everything else that goes on here. We know that we have a wonderful and growing collection We've been moving books off site for storage since the 1930s, but we're approaching a crisis point. We have now already moved elsewhere most of the obvious choices of things that aren't routinely called up and aren't especially vulnerable. Now we're reaching a stage where we have very limited room to grow the special collections. I learned to my chagrin yesterday that for every volume we acquire for the children's library One volume is sent off site. That's a terrible circumstance to be in and we need to correct it. Even though I should assure you, we have a wonderful state-of-the-art storage facility that is reliable and we're glad to retrieve books for you from that facility. We know that we have work to do to make the collection we have accessible. We want to be sure that our maps and our floor plans are legible, that the cutter classification system isn't a total impenetrable mystery, that our members know they can ask for help, and one of the great benefits of belonging to this library is that you will never reach a call center where you will be put through endless layers of recorded voices. You'll get a person and that person will be helpful and will probably walk you where you need to go or bring the book to you or mail the book to you at home. We know too that we need to think about our financial future. We have not done a good job explaining to our members how imperfectly diversified our sources of funding are. We're very reliant on our endowment, which we're fortunate to have. We haven't done an effective job diversifying the tiers of membership. There are essentially two big categories, which means that we're very dependent on fundraising, But again, we haven't conveyed that effectively. I think if our members knew the extent to which we need top-up gifts in addition to a membership fee, they'd be glad to contribute whatever they could, even if it were just $5 a year. But we haven't been asking, and as a result, we haven't been getting those additional funds. So it's something we're going to be thinking about as we move forward. How could we make participation in the annual fundraising effort something that people would be happy to do. I'm grateful that everyone who works with me here and every member of our board of trustees is committed to tackling these issues. We won't paper over them. We don't have a secret, perfect answer to everything, but we are exploring all of them. We want to get the answers right. I want the person who stands at a podium, well, maybe they won't even have podiums in 200 years time. But the person who is my successor after two centuries more to look out on a business that has been successful, a community of thinkers who are still engaging around ideas and the word and the image. And I think we have the chance to accomplish it, but I will close by asking for your help. If you've noticed an opportunity for us to do something differently or better, I would love to hear about it. You could send me an email, you could stop by my office, you could leave a phone message, you could stop in and chat with Catherine in the membership office who always has my ear, but it would be a great shame if there were wonderful ideas in our community that we weren't tapping. Thank you.